Good morning, church. It's wonderful to see you today. We're going to continue our look at the book of uh, Colossians, chapter 2, so you can start turning there and uh, would ask for uh, your patience this week. I have uh, been overcoming a uh, virus and uh, feel much better now. However, it has uh, affected me in that on occasion I'll start coughing uncontrollably. So that should add some degree of tension to the service, I hope, keep us all on our edge. It uh, reminds me a little bit of if you're ever on the north side of the UMHB campus having a conversation outside and a train comes through, you have to stop and kind of look awkwardly at one another until it passes. So we might find ourselves in that, uh, in that moment uh, today. We're continuing our look at what a captive mind looks like as described by Paul in his letter to the church at Colossae. Today we're looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. I'm going to ask that we stand in honor of reading God's Word. Colossians 2, 16 through 19. And here's what Paul writes. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connections with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by his ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Father, we thank you for your words to the believers at Colossae, and we thank you so much for your words for us today. I pray that your spirit would guide your words into each of our hearts as we study to become more and more like you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. <clears throat> so you may recall the church at Colossae was this motley mixture of new believers. They were brought from different areas, from earlier previous religions that they were still navigating their way out of. You had one part of the church that was made up of folks who had been brought up in the Greco-Roman tradition, worshiping gods like Zeus, gods uh, like Hera, goddesses like Hera, Mercury, all these gods that uh, we name planets after, they worshiped. And then you had others in the church who were raised in the Jewish tradition. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was language that they were familiar with. They were intimately familiar with the laws of the Old Testament and found great comfort in practicing those laws, just as those coming out of the Greco-Roman tradition found great comfort in the common Roman and Latin language uh, for their deities as well. So, somehow, God's Spirit works in their lives and calls people to faith out of those two backgrounds, and now they're sitting next to one another in the pew on Sunday morning trying to figure out how they're going to get along together. And so Paul is writing to them for those who 
uh, are asking these questions, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? And what about when I see Bill over here who's doing something that I really think Bill shouldn't be doing? I can't find the scripture to say Bill shouldn't be doing that, but the way I was raised, Bill is acting out of line. How do we navigate that? How do we figure that out? And then today in the 21st century as Baptists, how do we navigate that as well? Baptists are known for having different approaches and different opinions to different topics. You may not know that. This is very important for us to know. The only thing that I have ever found in my decades of ministry in Baptist churches that Baptists agree on is that they don't like long sermons. That's like the only thing that I found unanimity in that. So Baptists have traditionally identified four things that we agree on, and I'm only preaching on one of these today. The first thing that Baptists have traditionally agreed upon is the idea of uh, Bible freedom. That is, we as individuals are led by God to read the Bible for ourselves. People don't tell us how to read the Bible. We consult, we get uh, counsel, God speaks through our ministers and teachers uh, to share with us, but ultimately we read the Bible for ourselves. We don't believe something just because someone tells us that we should. In addition to Bible freedom is the idea of church freedom, or we say autonomy of the local church. That is, the Baptist church is not part of a group that tells us what to believe. It works the other way. We tell the group that we belong to what to believe. Each church has its own standing before God about what we believe. And third is the idea of religious freedom. Bible freedom, church freedom, religious freedom. That if that's true, if God speaks to us as a church, then that means the government can't force us and tell us what to believe. And so coming out of this long tradition out of Europe where the governments were very invasive about telling people how they had to believe, who had to be Catholic, who had to be Protestant, the Baptist, early Baptists said, enough. Let's get the church away from the government interference coming in here and telling us how we should believe. And then lastly, and the point of our message today is on the individual conscience of the believer. That at the end of the day, I love, love, love our pastor. I love our pastor. But on that day of judgment, when I stand before God, he's not going to be there like vouching for me. I'm not sure that he would anyway, but it doesn't work that way. At the end of the day, no matter how great your parents are, no matter how great the pastor to whom, under whom you came to know the Lord is, at the end of the day, you stand before God accountable for what you believe. And so as we study the church at Colossae, what we're finding is the early church was wrestling with this issue of what about when we have differences of opinions on matters of conscience? then what do we do? How do we navigate that? How do we work through that? And so we see then the importance of this, not only in the biblical testimony, but also in the Baptist tradition as an important part of what we do. George W. Truett, the longtime incredible pastor of First Baptist Dallas, said this almost a century ago, lording over the consciences of men is to the Baptist mind an insufferable tyranny in the realm of the soul, and it frustrates the grace of God to destroy freedom of conscience and terribly hinder the coming of the kingdom of our Lord. 
So the first thing we see in these verses, in verse 16 and 17, is that we stand before God on our own. So Paul writes to the church at Colossae, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. (coughs) Judging was going on in the church at Colossae. People were judging one another. There were a lot of judgy Judgertons who were members of this church. As Paul addresses them, the first word that he shares with them is therefore. And you've probably heard this before. The first thing whenever you're reading through scripture and you come across the word therefore, what do you ask? What is the therefore, therefore? And in this case, Paul is referencing back to the earlier part of this book. Brother Matt preached on this several weeks ago, talking about how Christ is sufficient in all things. Christ is the fulfillment of all things. He is, in verses uh, chapter 1, 15 through 20, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He is the head of the body. So now Paul says, because of that, because God is sufficient, because Christ is sufficient, for our needs, then we don't have to add things to that sufficiency. If God has done the work on our behalf through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die on our behalf, then why, Paul asks, are you starting to add things to what God has already done? And so we read in this this firm foundation that we just sang about, that is found in Jesus Christ, the fact that he is sufficient for our salvation means that he is sufficient for everything that we need to do. We don't come to faith in Christ and then have to start doing lots of things to prove ourselves worthy. God has called us to him. And so what was going on in the church is they were arguing that since Christ came, now there were all of these practices that people had to hold and and go along with. And those practices depended on what area you were coming from. So if you had previously been raised in the Jewish tradition, there were lots of festivals, celebrations you had to attend. If if you came out of the Greco-Roman background, You were raised with certain practices, certain ways that you were reverent toward God. You had to keep up with some of those. And Paul wants to cut them all off by saying, you no longer have to follow the things that you were following when you came to Christ. So when he says, don't let anyone look down on you for what you eat or drink, he's talking about some of these ceremonial laws. In the Jewish tradition, there was this strong command that we read throughout the Old Testament, all of these dietary laws and ceremonial laws that were put in place so that the people of Israel understood that they were different 
from the people in whose land they were living. Throughout the Old Testament, you read that the Hebrews were always cast adrift in foreign nations. Overall, sadly, just a short period of time were they in charge of their own nation. For the vast majority of their existence, they were either enslaved in Egypt, enslaved by the Babylonians, under Roman occupation, or in the years after that, cast to the four winds. So there weren't these occasions for them to uh, become a part of the local community. The way they maintained their independence was by adhering to very strict ceremonial separations from those around them. So they didn't eat the same things. They didn't act the same way. They didn't wear the same kinds of clothes because God called them to be separate. Well, then the great reversal happens in the book of Acts where a vision comes to Peter and God calls him that this time of separation is now important for the new Christians to go out into all the world, to bring all people to know Christ. So you have this shift where what formerly had been a mark of separation, Peter is now commanded to bring in into this relationship because God knew from the beginning that the church was going to break out of the riverbed of Judaism and spread to the Gentiles all around the world, and we thank God that God had that plan in mind. And so the challenge becomes then, when you have this group of different believers coming together with different religious practices, how do they all fit together? And so Paul is very direct. He says, don't let people look down upon you about your religious festivals. These were the annual events that held every year. Or your new moon celebrations, these were some of the monthly events. Or your Sabbath day, these weekly events that happened. It's interesting how he says, <coughs> don't let those judge you. And he uses the term like a court of law, like a judge. Don't let these people sit in judgment over you as you seek to what God is calling you to do. And then he says, all of these practices, these celebrations are shadows of things to come. They all point to something important, and that is the day when we are reunited with Christ. I love the various celebrations of the church, but they all point to a time when they won't exist anymore. We read this fascinating text in 1 Corinthians 11 where we had the Lord's Supper. Have you thought about this before? Are we going to practice the Lord's Supper in heaven? I mean, this is, this is what we think about, right? Sit around wondering questions like this. We practice the Lord's Supper, we get to heaven. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so there's this idea that these practices, like the Lord's Supper, are pointing us towards something, and that that time and place when we're reunited with Christ is what the main focus is. And so Paul tells them, don't let others look down upon you for what you do practice or what you don't practice because God is calling you to uh, this day when he is going to be face-to-face, when he will be in our presence. In our presence, <clears throat> one thing we like to do as a 
Well, I won't, I won't say you like, I like to do, I like, I like it when people kind of agree with me, my <laughs> theological views. I was talking to my daughter recently. Uh, she's a little more growth minded, I think, in her outlook than I am. And she said to me, she said, you know what it is about you, dad? She said, whenever you say something, you think that you're right. <laughs> and I, and this surprised me. I said, doesn't everybody think that? I mean, don't we all think that? <laughs> But there's this desire that we have for others to agree with us. And so we have conversations, and, uh, and some, of, some of those conversations illustrate the different perspectives that we have. I wanted to show you a way to help us think through how much energy we need to spend on areas of disagreement. I, this might look familiar. I shared this with you a little over two years ago. And uh, this was developed by the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, Al Mohler, who talked about a theological triage. You may be familiar with triage. I'm familiar with it because I watched MASH back in the 70s, where they talked about triage a lot. And this was developed by uh, nurses during World War I, and it was the idea that when patients came in from the battlefield, you don't treat them all the same. You divide them up in according to those where you need to spend the most amount of energy uh, to uh, generate the, the greatest survival rate among them. And Moeller took this idea and applied it to a way for uh, believers to talk to one another about how we uh, expend our energy in disagreement. So I wanted to share a bit of those uh, with you. Uh, four tiers for how to approach T-I-E-R-S, not T-E-A-R-S. Uh, which is important to know. I think we have those on uh, uh, video, perhaps. Yes, tier one. So these are the most important theological issues that we hold. These are the most critical perspectives that we believe. If you say, if you are asked the question, what do Christians believe, this is where you start. These are the ones most important to us. So, uh, these are the ones that we want to spend the most energy fighting for and arguing about are these core issues. So, some examples of what this could look like, uh, the virgin birth, the fact that Christ's death somehow brings us into a right relationship with God, and we believe that Jesus Christ literally resurrected from the dead. If, if you don't believe these things, then you're not a Christian. And if a Christian argues against these, well, we're gonna have it out because these are fundamental to the faith. They're so fundamental that these are what separate us from other religions. So this will separate us from, uh, from uh, those who follow Islam, uh, from those who um, uh, follow any of the other world religions uh, that we have in mind. The second thing, the second tier, are those that distinguish us from other Christians. So these are views that other Christians have that we don't share. We're Baptists, that's why they are, whatever, Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopalian, Pentecostal, whatever they are, they're not us. And these are the views that take those distinguishing areas of differences. So we disagree. I shared with you earlier some views that I think are foundational to who Baptists are. But at the end of the day, I know that my good friend David, 
who is assembly of God, I know at the end of the day, when we're both in heaven, we're going to be sharing a meal together at the wedding feast of the Lamb. He's going to be there. So even though we have a difference of opinion, it's not as great as the tier one. You with me on this? So some examples of this would be things like uh, being baptized as an adult as opposed to an infant baptism, or the idea that every soul has standing directly before God, that, that we don't have to mediate through a priest or anything like that. We can go directly to Him as well. All right, so tier one separates us from other religions. Second, distinguishes us from other Christians. Tier three, things that distinguish us from other Baptists. Not all Baptists believe exactly the same way. Not all Baptists in our Sunday school class believe the same way. Not all Baptists in my family believe the same way. On a good day, I get outvoted three to two in my family. So what are some examples of things that may distinguish us from other Baptists? Well, you have a diversity of opinion on Calvinism, uh, the idea of um, uh, reformed thought, predestination, very different views on that. You have a variety of views on end times, uh, people taking different approaches to what that is and how important that is as well. And then tier, so he stopped there. I added a fourth tier. I think there are some cultural distinctives. That, even, that is, they're not even theological in nature. Some examples of those would be things like the clothes we wear. Brother Josh made reference to t-shirts on a Sunday morning. There are likely a variety of views in this church about t-shirts on Sunday morning. Well, that's a cultural distinctive that is not addressed specifically in the biblical text. Having worship at 9 a.m., that's different. There are different churches that take different approaches. Having a ministry guide, I saw a, my college roommates, a pastor in North Carolina several years ago, I saw on Facebook one of his church, church members light him up over the fact that they no longer had printed Sunday morning orders of worship. And so there's a difference of opinion on these things. So the point is that as we have these differences of opinion, we should expend energy in proportion to how important the issue is. So if it is a tier one issue, we need to be ready to go all out. We need to fight and we need to contend strongly for that. If it's a cultural issue, it's not as important. It's not as significant. We can certainly share our views, have those conversations, but understand at the end of the day, it's just not as important as these other matters are. So then how do we approach the way we conduct ourselves with these different views? The second thing that Paul shares with the church at Colossae is that humility is the pathway of Christ. Humility is the pathway to Christ. In verse 18, he says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Paul is saying that they spend so much time speculating about angels, they almost seem to worship them. They have spent so much time developing these, these high-end theories about some specifics of theology that Paul indicates they've lost the point. Because they don't correctly understand the importance of God, 
They don't correctly understand who they are in God's eyes. The, the language that Paul uses is interesting. He says, don't let anyone disqualify you. He's using sports language here. Don't let them be self-appointed umpires who call balls and strikes on your behavior, but rather let Scripture be, be your guide. Umpires are supposed to be objective and fair. They're not supposed to call you out. Paul says they were calling others out. And when they focus on others, Paul begins to develop this theme that they are not focusing on God. So those who judge others are not judging themselves in that way. And so Paul has strong words about them and focuses upon the importance of humility. I came across this uh, very interesting approach to humility this week that I hadn't encountered before. <coughs> there was a uh, professor who wrote up his um, uh, curricula vita, his description of all the thing that he's all the things that he's done. And this is not unusual in higher education. People write about all their publications, where they went to school, all the stuff they did. But he decided instead to write a resume of failure. And what he did is he not only wrote up, but published on his website a resume of failures, in which he says, most of what I try fails, but these failures are invisible because I don't talk about them. I only talk about the successes which are visible. And so then he lists degree programs I did not get into. In 2008, I did not get into a PhD program in economics. In 2003, I did not get into graduate courses in medicine. In 1999, I did not get into a bachelor's degree in economics. And he goes on and on and on to describe academic positions and fellowships that he didn't get. He had this long list of failures and concludes with this note. He said, this stupid resume of failures has received more attention than my entire body of academic work has ever achieved. And so it's fascinating how his focus, not upon the actions of others, but the failures of self, has brought this realization to him. Paul then turns his guns full bore upon those in the church who were most deserving of them, those who were most self-righteous. In verse 19, he describes those who are self-righteous as they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Those who are self-righteous, Paul says, are cut off from the body and can no longer grow. Being self-righteous is the spiritual equivalent of cigarettes. It prevents you from growing. It stops and injures your relationship to God and to others. I'm going to have to play the expert card here. I didn't pick this text. This text picked me. I have a PhD in self-religiosity. 
I have a doctorate in self-righteousness. I know of what I speak. And so I thought, I was trying to think about how to give examples of being self-righteous, and uh, I was inspired by that great comedian, Jeff Foxworthy. Remember Jeff Foxworthy? I had to look to make sure he's still with us. He is. Uh, he had a series, uh, You Might Be a Redneck If. You remember some of these? You might be a redneck if you've ever had to go on a payment plan for a tattoo. It's one of his. You might be a redneck if you have ever mowed your front lawn and found a car. Um, and so I want to share, you might be self-righteous if some of these things apply to you. And, and I have to say, they're, not, they're not, actually not funny. Uh, not funny at all. But I say all of them from someone who's done all of these. I have done all of these. And you may be saying, John, I'm sure you're not that bad. You're right, I'm worse than this. You might be self-righteous if you ever compare yourself to others in your faith. You might be self-righteous if you legalistically strain out gnats but swallow a longhorn. I'll give you an example. I was raised that mowing the lawn on Sundays was wrong. Okay? You see why? That's working on the Sabbath. You don't do that. So, we can have a discussion about that. That's not the point of the message. That's the way I was raised. And so, I need to, if I believe that, I, I need to be consistent with that. What I don't need to do if I believe that is come over here and see Bob, my neighbor, who's mowing his lawn on Sunday. Well, Bob, you can't be doing that, mowing your lawn on a Sunday, taking my rules and applying them to others. And then it gets worse. I won't mow my lawn on Sunday, but after church on Sunday, I'll go out to eat. I'll do that. And the, the great waiter, the great waitress, they're taking care of me. In order for me to be taken care of, someone else has to work on Sunday. And they're getting paid for that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm, I won't sin, but I'll let them do my sinning for me, essentially. On a Sunday, you might be self-righteous. If you claim not to struggle with sin, you might be self-righteous. If you say you follow all the rules, you might be self-righteous. If you compare, this is before I knew about the t-shirt, if you compare what you are wearing on a Sunday morning to what other people are wearing on Sunday morning, you might be self-righteous. If you say all the right words, to others when they're going through something tough and then you don't do anything else on their behalf, if you don't lift a finger to help them, you might be self-righteous. If you've ever been a grace killer, that is, uh, this is like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. If, uh, if you've ever looked down upon the sins of someone else who has come to faith, you might be self-righteous. Two more. If you think that this list is for other people in the room, <laughs> you might be self-righteous. If you put following your own made-up rules before serving other people, you might be self 
righteous. The worst part about being self-righteous is not that it hurts others, because they may not even know about it. The people, when I was driving, I mean, I'm preaching on this this morning, and I'm driving to church this morning, and I count the number of people mowing their lawn on the way here. They don't even know how judgmental I'm being as I drive by. But, but that illustrates the worst part about being self-righteous isn't that it hurts them, but it hurts me. Because it somehow puts me in the position of saying that I am not as much in need of God's grace than someone else is. That's a terrible place to be. If you don't realize how desperately thirsty you are, then you have no desire for the living water. If you don't know that you're starving, then you have no need for the bread of life. If you don't see your shortcomings, if God hasn't convicted you about how you judge others in terms of looking at yourself, then you're not open to growing into who Christ wants you to be. Ultimately, Christ came for the purpose of giving us an incredible gift that all we have to do is accept. As I close this morning, I want to share about a gift my dad gave me this very week. Uh, Power was out in East Texas, so we had uh, mom and dad Vassar come in and stay with us for several days, and my dad brought me a book. A book is called The Wager, about the shipwreck that happened in the early 1700s by David Grant. Fantastic book, so good, I've already finished it. And dad gave that to me. And it occurred to me that the people in the early church, what they were doing is they were adding to the gift that God had given them. It was as though my dad gave me the book and I said to him, dad, I bet you gave this to me because when I was 14, for one week straight, I did all my chores. Remember that time I made not two, but three B's in one semester? You remember that? I bet that's why you gave me this book. I never had that conversation with him because he would have said, don't be stupid, is what he would have said. But also because I knew that dad's gift was not based on what I had done before or what I would do again. In the same way, God's gift to us His gift of a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, is a gift that He extends to all of us, and all we have to do is accept it. If Dad had offered me this book and I said, you know what, let's keep it in the bag, uh, I'm, I'm not going to accept that, well then, that would have been awkward. And I don't think he would have forced it on me. I don't think he would have said, son, you will read this book. I think he would have let me go my own way. In the same way as God offers his gift to us freely, all we must do is accept that. But we have to do that. We have to reach out our hands and extend that. I want to give you an opportunity to respond uh, to this message that the Lord has laid upon our hearts today as the praise team comes forward and we prepare to sing. I want you to uh, pray 
and ask God for guidance in those areas of your life uh, where you have perhaps been too focused on the behavior of others and not attentive enough to God's calling in your life as well.